If you will turn in your pew Bibles to Luke chapter 16, verses 16 to 31, for quick reference, that's page 875. Luke chapter 16, verses 16 to 31. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to be void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham from afar and Lazarus at his side and called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember you remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to there are not able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that, they may be, so that he may warn them, Least they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the disciples. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I must be honest with you this morning, and I have struggled with this passage all week. I struggled knowing what to teach, what to preach, what to illustrate, how to apply this text. Every part of this text is hard. We find ourselves in the midst of a conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. But as John pointed out a few weeks ago, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, as you can see in 16 verse 1. But although Jesus is speaking to the disciples, he's speaking about the Pharisees, as you can see in verse 14. And what makes this text so hard is that once we realize what Jesus is teaching, we realize that being a disciple of Jesus is hard. Following Jesus 
is hard. The Pharisees were listening to Jesus, but did they hear Jesus? The disciples were listening to Jesus, but did they hear Jesus? In this passage, Jesus is discipling his disciples. He is teaching them. If you follow me, you will be like me. And as disciples of Christ, I pray that we pay close attention. Because what Jesus teaches has eternal consequences. As this passage reveals in graphic detail. And we must ask ourselves the question, what does believing in the word of God have to do with how we live? Specifically with this passage, what does believing in Jesus mean for us and how we handle our money? Most commentators I read broke up this passage, as most of your Bibles do, between verses 14 to 17, or 14 to 18, and then 19 to 31. But what I wanted us to focus on was how this passage is bookended. Look at verse 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. Now look at verse 31. And Abraham said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets. This passage is bookended with the word of God. What does the story of Lazarus and the rich man have to do with Moses and the prophets? In this conversation, we are inserted to Jesus is teaching his disciples his ethics. The way that they are supposed to live in the kingdom of God. Ethics are what do we believe and so how are we supposed to live? The way we read and believe scripture, the way that we listen and believe in Jesus does not end in mental ascension. Believing in God's word, his promises, believing in Jesus ends with living and acting like Jesus. It ends in the application of our belief. It ends with living in the kingdom of God. And I know all of you are surprised I'm preaching about the kingdom of God. But I believe in chapter 16 in the Gospel of Luke is a telling chapter. Think of where we have come from. How does the Gospel begin? begins with the birth narrative of Jesus, right? No, it doesn't. It believes with the birth narrative of John the Baptist. Is John the Baptist in this passage? He is. Luke records three temptations that Jesus had in the, in the desert with Satan. And this aren't the temptations, because no one could stand them for 40 days and 40 nights. But Satan tempted Jesus for 40 days and 40 nights. How did Jesus respond? By quoting the law. Is the law in this passage? It is. In Luke 6, Jesus teaches us about the Beatitudes. How we're supposed to care for the poor. That is in this passage. 
Then Jesus began preaching the kingdom. The kingdom is in this passage. This passage is a microcosm of the entire book of Luke. And if you do not understand chapters 1 through 15, if you haven't prayed on it, meditated on it, studied it, you will not understand the struggle of chapter 16. This story about Lazarus and the rich man is an application of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Luke 6. And it has to do with where our heart lies. Are we loyal to Christ or are we loyal to our money? How will the disciples use their money? How will we live out what we believe with our money? These are Christian ethics. How will believing in Jesus change everything about our lives? In this passage, Jesus is teaching his followers how to be disciples of Christ in the kingdom of God. And we are forced to see if our hearts believe, then our minds will believe and we will act like Jesus. And Jesus challenges the Pharisees and the disciples. Are you lovers of money? Or are you lovers of the kingdom of God? For the gospel of the kingdom teaches us that our salvation and our hope does not come from us. But it comes in the fact that Jesus transforms our hearts to love what he loves. It's not about trying harder. Our hearts can only be changed by Christ. And when they are changed, then we will act like Jesus. Let us go to the Lord in prayer and let us ask him to illuminate our hearts that he may reveal himself this morning. Please pray with me. It's interesting to come into a conversation that begins with talking about the law and the prophets. Why is Jesus talking about John? Why is Jesus talking about divorce? But notice, Jesus' claim in this passage is the entirety of the Old Testament. When he says the law and the prophets together, he is claiming the entire um, 48 books, 48 books? Of, the New, of the Old Testament. And what he's indicating is, is that his kingdom ethics come from the Old Testament. If God's law and the prophets, the entire Old Testament, if the primary purpose of that text is to reveal God and is supposed to inform man on what man is supposed to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man, then that law will never pass away. The law reveals the lawgiver. The Old Testament speaks of how to treat fellow humans. It teaches kingdom ethics. For instance, Deuteronomy 10.18. You don't have to turn there. But Deuteronomy 10.18. God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, 
and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Deuteronomy 10.18 gives a kingdom ethic. Then you can look at Deuteronomy 14, verses 28 to 29, 15, 1 to 3, 22, 1 to 2, 23, 19, 24, 7 through 15. That's just Deuteronomy. Then you can look at the prophets, Isaiah 3, 5, 10, 32, 58, Jeremiah 5 and 7, Ezekiel 18, 33, Amos 3, 5 and 8, Micah 2, 3, 6, Zechariah 7, Malachi 3. The Old Testament teaches kingdom ethics. Jesus' ethics come from the Old Testament. That is what Jesus is saying in verse 17. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This past Thursday during men's Bible study, we discussed a new book that has come out by Andy Stanley. And as Blake did, I will do also. I have never read this book. I have only read what other people have said after reading this book. I have looked at what the publisher's excerpts have said on this book. And this book is called Irresistible, Reclaiming the New that Jesus Unleashed for the World. Here's what Amazon's excerpt says. Once upon a time, there was a version of our faith that was practically irresistible. But that was then. Today we preach, teach, write, and communicate as if nothing has changed. As if, quote, the Bible says it, end quote, still settles it. It's time to hit pause on much of what we're doing and consider the faith modeled by our first century brothers and sisters who had no official Bible, no status, and humanly speaking, little chance of survival. What did they know that we don't? What made their faith so compelling, so defensible, so irresistible? Andy Stanley is a pastor in Atlanta. He's a senior pastor of North Point Community Church, which has six campuses and claims 32,000 attendees each weekend, making it one of the largest churches in the U.S., he has a degree in journalism from Georgia State University and a master's degree from Dallas Theological Seminary. Andy Stanley's version, vision for his church was to reach a people that nobody else was reaching. And to do that, they needed to do something that nobody else was doing. They wanted to create a church unchurched people would love to attend. To do that, and what this book claims is that to reach people with the gospel today, we must, and I quote from his book, consider unhitching your teaching of what it means to follow Jesus from all things Old Covenant. He says that when people have a hard time believing in the gospel, and I quote again, the Old Testament is usually the culprit. His book goes on to say, and I quote, Thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments. 
What is he doing? Why is he saying that? First off, I believe, like all good publishers, what he's saying, he's saying for shock value. He, he does want to sell books. But what Andy Stanley doesn't believe is that without the Old Testament, the New Testament won't make sense. Without the Old Testament, Jesus' sermons don't have a foundation. Without the Old Testament, Jesus' sacrifice means nothing. What did Jesus quote to Satan while Satan was tempting him in the desert? Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 5, 17. This is on page 810. Matthew 5, 17 is a Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew 5, verse 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches other to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, Luke 16, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, James, Jude, 1 John. All of these authors base the life of a Christian on the Old Testament ethics. To love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our strength is not a New Testament idea. It's found in the Old Testament. Jesus is teaching kingdom ethics. So what does this mean for us? What Stanley confuses is that once Christ fulfills the law, he thinks the law and the prophets are no longer relevant. But that's not what Jesus teaches. He teaches that once the law is fulfilled, then his disciples can actually love the law. Stanley wants us to be unhitched from the Old Testament. That's the Old Testament that teaches us to love our neighbors, just like Jesus did. The Old Testament teaches us to help the orphan and the widow, just like James does. The Old Testament reveals God and prepares us for Jesus. What did Jesus do in his life? He fulfilled the law perfectly. What are Christians called to do? Live like Jesus. By living out the law, only by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can do it no other way. Jesus is what the law pointed us to. He is its center. 
And to be a disciple of Jesus, we must live a Christian ethics, a Christian ethic. How do we love God? We actually love God by loving our neighbor. How do we love God? We actually love God by obeying the commandments. How do we love our neighbor? Do not kill them. Deuteronomy 5.17. But that's a pretty low standard of loving your neighbor, right? How else do we love your neighbor? Well, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, do not become angry with them. That's a high standard. How do you love your neighbor? By not committing adultery. Deuteronomy 5.18. Again, that's a pretty low standard. How else do you love your neighbor? By not looking lustfully at them in your heart. That's a high standard. And then Jesus gives us an example from the law. Verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Loving God and loving our neighbor is founded in the Old Testament. And it is expanded in the New Testament. Because Jesus shows us how to live it perfectly. And we can't do it without him. We must completely rely on his power. But that's the good news. That's the news of the gospel. We can't do it on our own. We need Jesus. We cannot reach the unchurched any other way than pointing people to Jesus. When we point them to Christ, it's funny. He points them to the Old Testament, as does Paul, John, James, Peter, Matthew, Mark, Jude, James, the New Testament writers. Jesus' ethics are Old Testament ethics because Old Testament ethics reveal the character of God. And it's very interesting in this conversation that Jesus is having that after this point is when he brings up Lazarus. It is a story that illustrates, if you are my disciples, this is how you should live. Or more precisely, if you are my disciples, this is not how you should live. How much do we love God is shown And how much do we love our neighbor? Please turn to verse 19. I'm going to read the story of Lazarus again. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades being tormented, he he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham from afar and Lazarus at his side and called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime 
received your good things, and Lazarus in a like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to here. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This story is a story of reversal. What the poor man has in his lifetime switches. What the rich man has in his lifetime when he dies switches. What do you think when you see someone living in poverty? What is your reaction to a beggar on the street? You know, this illustration is pretty well known to us. This idea of someone very rich denying someone who is very poor and in need. That is how the beauty of the beast starts. Right? There's this extravagant king who has all this money. And this enchantress shows up and asks for help. And when you read the story or watch the movie, you can have two reactions to how the king responded. First... You can side with the beggar and say, the king should have just given a little to her. Or you can actually side with the king and say, why was he obligated to help her? He didn't know her. The problem with option number two is that's exactly what the rich man did to Lazarus. This is the situation. We're walking in Memphis Oakland or Somerville, and we see someone who clearly has nothing, and they ask a few dollars, and how do we respond? Is it like the rich man? And I'll be the first to say, I have ten things I can say to him before they even come to me. But how does Jesus respond to the beggar? Because Jesus comes to us when we are completely depraved of life. Look at how Lazarus is described in verse 20. And at his gate he was laid, a poor man named Lazarus, covered it with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The word laid or was lying describes someone who's immobilized, whether through sickness or physical handicap. Lazarus was completely depraved of the things that he needed to survive. And how does Jesus react to those who are in need? Well, if you read Luke 15, he goes after them like a shepherd who lost a sheep, like a woman who lost her coin, after a father who has found that his son is alive 
and well. And what does Jesus give them? His entire inheritance. Everything that was due to him, he gives to them. Now, I don't have a checklist of what we should do when we see someone begging for money. Meeting someone that literally has nothing. But how can this passage help us think through how we can help them? Does it change our posture to see this person begging and knowing they are an image bearer of our king? Does this reversal passage at least slow us down to think of the implications of this text? This person is physically and probably spiritually destitute. How can we love this person? Can we pray with them? Can we ask them their story? Can we try and restore dignity? Back home, I know a girl who with some friends started a nonprofit called Three Bags in Two Days. And this is their vision statement. Our vision is to provide a sense of dignity and respect to those who receive a bag. Through the bag, we hope to offer a sense of dignity, respect, and a little relief for those in our community who have nothing. We believed one of the first steps in ending poverty is acknowledging that exists, and through the exchange of a bag, we recognize a person's worth. Through the giving and receiving of the basic necessities, we provide the immediate needs and connect them with an area of resources to offer them a little bit of hope. How are we, as Christ Presbyterian Church, co-heirs of the new covenant under Christ, looking and bringing God's redemptive kingdom into our community? If we believe the scripture's goal is not to merely to share information about God, but actually to conform us into the likeness of Christ, how do we do this? With our money. We begin by asking the Spirit to reveal our blind spots. That we ask the Spirit to help us when we are hesitant to step in. We ask the Spirit to break down our objections that we think of so quickly. What duty? Does God require of man to live like Jesus, to love like Jesus, to be generous like Jesus? This passage speaks of our heart's desires. What are the desires of our heart? Do we want to be well thought of, to be successful? to provide for our family, to do well in school? Are we looking for a promotion? Are we looking to not be a certain way? Or is our desire to love the Lord our God with all that we have by loving our neighbor as ourselves?
This is what this passage speaks to. And as a disciple of Jesus, we must love our neighbor even with our money. Loving our neighbor is the minimum requirement of the law. Turn with me to Luke chapter 6, verse 20 through 26. On page 862 of your Bibles. Luke 6, chapter 20, or verse 20. Luke 6, 20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all the people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Does this sound familiar? This is the ethical living of the story of Lazarus. The Pharisees loved the law so much. Then for the only way for them to keep it, they had to change the iota and the dot. But our problem is that we are too blind to see our own imperfections. When we enter this conversation, Jesus has just finished teaching and applying the parable of the unjust steward. He has given his disciples an eternal perspective of their earthly possessions. He has warned them to plan for the future. Then he had spoken to them about the mutually exclusive mastery of God and money in their lives. The Pharisees heard what Jesus said to them. And instead of their hearts being changed, they sneered at him. Will we hear the words of Jesus and will our hearts be changed? Or will we become defensive and put our guards up? Are we living as though our king is getting ready to come home? Are we using our worldly wealth to fulfill what the scriptures demand? To love justice and seek mercy for the orphan, the widow, and the sojourner. To cast out the lowly and the poor. Are we in love with our money? I want to take it one step farther than that. Here is a list of warning signs that you are more in love with money than you are with God. And this is a tough list for me to read. 
Are you anxious about your finances, not trusting God to provide our needs today and tomorrow? We are in love with our money and its power to make us feel more secure. When our lives are so full of work that we say no to Christian service, we are in love with money and have given it mastery over our schedules. When we find our thoughts returning again and again to something we are hoping to buy, we are in love with the money and its power to get us what we think we need. When we make employment decisions that are spiritually unwise for ourselves and for our families, we are in love with money and the plans for getting more of it. When we find ourselves wishing we had some material possession that God has given to someone else, we are in love with money and the status or convenience or pleasures it seems to bring. We spend more time complaining about what we do not have than rejoicing with what we do have. We are in love with money and depend on our possessions rather than God to give us contentment, hope, and joy. When it seems difficult or even impossible to give up something we want in order to give a full biblical tithe or to make a sacrificial gift to a Christian need, we are more in love with money than we are the gospel and what it can do to change the world. We are generally inclined to think that the love of money is a small failing. That is much farther down the list than evil deeds, such as cursing against God or committing a sexual sin. But according to Jesus in this passage, the love of money is as appalling and betrayal of the love of God as any other sin. It is a rejection of the gospel of salvation in the kingdom of God. Do we need to confess our love of money? I know I do. Do we need to confess of loving only ourselves? I know I do. Do we need to confess to love our image over the person and the work of Christ? I know I do. This passage teaches us that Jesus calls the love of money an abomination. The love of money is disgusting to God. This passage reveals, like the Pharisees, it's happening within God's own people. People who mask themselves in the church. They live for themselves rather than for serving others. But yet there's good news. Our hearts and our affections and our allegiances can all be changed by the gospel of Jesus. And that is what Jesus proclaims here. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. Everything has changed because of Jesus. Because his final act of love and grace has come to us. Jesus died upon the cross because our sins were abomination to God. And by faith, we are secure in our salvation. 
It is God and God alone who changes our heart's desires. It is the helper, the Holy Spirit, that can change our affections. It is Christ who enables us to change our allegiances because without him, we have no choice but to love the world. The good news for money-loving sinners like myself is that Jesus rose from the dead on my behalf. We are justified by faith in him. This passage calls us to find satisfaction in God's provision for us in Christ alone. And then and only then can we proclaim the gospel to the entire world. And the entire world needs it. Because the entire world needs their hearts changed by the gospel. Do you believe in this gospel? Do you believe in this Jesus? May we as God's people hear this call and kneel before him. For this is the first commandment. Him and no other. May we proclaim this gospel because all the earth needs it. The Heidelberg Catechism, first question and answer. What is our only comfort in life and in death? Is that in both life and death we are not our own, but belong unto my faithful Savior Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of the Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing. And here's where the kingdom ethic comes in. To be ready henceforth to live unto him. That is a kingdom ethic. Please pray with me.